0: today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Every sunrise.
1: The word Christos and Mashiach for Messiah translates anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ Christ. All those words mean the same thing. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Paul is using scripture, because he's in the synagogue, to reason with the Jews from their own scriptures. What we have in our Bibles as our Old Testament about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these messianic prophecies. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ.
0: This is Cornerstone Connection. The radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Acts. While the Apostle Paul preached to the Jews in the synagogues, he brought the gospel by using Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The Jews had talked about and waited for a Redeemer since the time of Genesis chapter 3. Jesus was the fulfillment of those hopes, In today's message, Pastor Gary reminds us that Old Testament prophecies foretold in perfect accuracy who the Messiah, or Anointed One, would be. We, too, can use these same prophecies to lead others to Jesus, just as the Apostle Paul did. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for today's message from the book of Acts, chapter 18.
1: It tells us that they were tent makers because it tells us that Paul joins with them. In the day, most of the times that people were in, quote, full-time ministry, they also had a, they were considered bivocational in many ways because there was a trade or there was a skill that they also used to make a living. It was a rare thing to see them in full-time supported, financially supported ministry, although we're going to see that that happens here for Paul. But he is a tent maker by trade, Probably that word means one who is a worker of leather, and so he finds them. Now, did he know them before? Did he just happen to meet them? They're just strangers, and they struck up a conversation. We don't have any background on it, but he comes in contact with them. He finds out they are tent makers like he is, and so he stays with them, verse 3 says, and he worked with them, and this is a couple who we're going to see a little bit later in this chapter. They're going to end up discipling a guy by the name of Apollos, And they are also mentioned, the very last letter that Paul writes before he is beheaded, before he's martyred for his faith, in 2 Timothy 4.19, he makes a reference to Aquila and Priscilla, thanking them for their ministry. So we're introduced to them. And then one other thing here in the first couple of verses, and I mentioned this word last time we were in chapter 17, because it's used four times between chapter 17 and 18, and it's it's this word reasoned. Paul says in verse 4, every Sabbath, it says, about Paul in verse 4, that every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, and that Greek word is dialegomei, meaning to say thoroughly or to converse. So where we get our English word dialogue. So this is where he is, Corinth. Uh, this is what he's doing. He's reasoning first in the Jewish synagogue, and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. So that's the background now to his entrance into Corinth. Uh, He's at first by himself, but it tells us now, read on with me in verse 5, that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So, here come Silas and Timothy, traveling companions of Paul. They're joining him here. They've come from Macedonia, and they've come with financial support. Now, how do we know this? This is what he's referring to here when it says that that Paul now devoted himself exclusively to preaching. The meaning is, he didn't have to be a part of the tent making business anymore because now he was financially supported here with offerings that came by way of timothy and silas such that he could devote himself exclusively and entirely his time to preaching and to ministry now we know this because when you compare scripture with scripture we get the rest of the story and by the way the best commentary on the bible is the bible so in the margin of your bible right there at verse five you can write second corinthians 11 9 2 Corinthians eleven nine. 9. Let me read it to you. In writing to the church at Corinth, which is the church that's going to emerge from his time here in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He says in chapter 11, verse 9, And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For Listen to this. For the brothers, referring to Silas and Timothy, who came from Macedonia, that's what we just read, supplied what i needed i have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so so in his letter back to the corinthians much later here in second corinthians 11 paul says i never wanted to be a burden to, to you corinthian people i didn't want you to have to support me so i was a tent maker until the brothers came from macedonia and they brought offerings with them When you couple that with Philippians 4.15, Philippians 4.15, he commends the church at Philippi for sending offerings by way of Silas and Timothy for his support. So when you put it all together, 2 Corinthians 11.9, Philippians 4.15, and back here in Acts 18.5, What we learn is that Paul is able to devote himself exclusively to the ministry because his financial support has come by way of the church of Philippi through Silas and Timothy to him there in Corinth. Uh, And and let me just say to you, it is is a difficult thing. I know some pastors who are bivocational because their churches aren't large enough to support them full-time. And it is a very difficult thing to work a full-time job and then to also pastor a church. And I'm very thankful that since the, the beginning of our church, uh, the church has been able to support me and my family. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing that we enjoy because I don't know how pastors do it. It's a, it's a very difficult thing, a very strenuous thing to have a full-time job and also to pastor a congregation. Paul is talking here about how it was wonderful not to be a burden to anybody because offerings came for my support so I could devote myself exclusively to preaching Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That's the way verse 5 ends. So circle the word Christ. It is the Greek word Christos. Spelled just like it is with an O-S on the end of it. Christos. And it, it is the same word in Hebrew as Mashiach. Which is where we get our English word Messiah. So whenever Jesus is referred to as Christ, the word Christos and Mashiach for Messiah translates anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. All those words mean the same thing. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Paul is using scripture, because he's in the synagogue, to reason with the Jews from their own scriptures. What we have in our Bibles as our Old Testament, about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these messianic prophecies. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. Verse 6 says, But when the Jews opposed Paul because not everybody likes what he's saying, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that's what he does. Verse 7 says, And then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So here's this guy living right next to the To the synagogue, verse eight, Crispus, the synagogue ruler. Okay, this is Crispus. This is not Crispix. That's a cereal. All right, (laughs) this is not rice Crispus treats. That's something else entirely. This is Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So now there's some fruit to the ministry here. Whereas at first, Paul is shunned by the Jews. He goes right next door. He says, all right, fine. I'm going to reach out to the, to the Greek Gentiles who are living here in Corinth. And there's already a guy here, Titius Justus, who's a worshiper. We don't know if he, um, you know, that that means he's a believer, but he's a worshiper. Crispus and his entire household and, and many of the Corinthians who heard, uh, believed and were baptized. In verse 9 says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Now this is pretty unusual for him to stay there 18 months, when usually he would plan to work, stay a few months, or even less than that, and move on. But the Lord visits him here in a, in a vision. And as a result of this vision, Paul extends his stay beyond what he normally would. But I want you to notice that the Lord would not minister these things to Paul if he weren't wrestling with the things that the Lord is addressing here. And I point that out because sometimes when we think about the heroes of the Bible, and Paul certainly would fall in that category as far as I'm concerned, we sometimes get the illusion... That these great heroes of the faith never, you know, had any personal fears or worries or struggles, you know, other than the fact that obviously Paul was many times persecuted and beaten. And, but I mean, I love the way it starts out, where the Lord just says to him, Don't be afraid. Because what it tells us is that he was afraid. I mean, if, if Paul weren't afraid, the Lord would not have shown up and said, No, don't be afraid. Because that would have been a useless waste of God's time. God knows that he was in fear and perfect love drives out fear the bible says that god has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and of a sound mind fear is not of the lord and yet fear is a very real emotion it can be a very debilitating emotion it can be something that many of us struggle with and the first words from the lord here do not fear someone once counted this i've never substantiated it but someone once said that there are 365 times in the Bible where it says, do not fear. That's one for every day of every year of your life. And here's the encouragement from the Lord to to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, don't be silent. What's he afraid about? Because at different places where Paul has gone, he's been beaten and left for dead. Remember the whole scene in Lystra on the first missionary journey? It's probably why Paul had an ongoing problem with his vision because he was probably, when he was left for dead and stoned uh, by the people who didn't like him, he has sustained such injuries that it probably affected his eyesight for the rest of his life. And he's probably afraid that if he stays here at Corinth, people are going to beat him up and try to kill him. And worse, maybe even succeed in killing him. So I just love the realness here of what the Lord is saying. Paul's got to be afraid. Paul doesn't want to stick around here. And I love also the comfort God says, because I have many people in this city. God has many of his people in every city. And God's in control. And God's got everything under control. And everything's going to be fine. This is a word of great comfort and encouragement to Paul. So he realizes, all right. God's God's got his own people here, and so I'm going to be safe, and I'm going to be taken care of. And he stays there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God, verse 11 says. Teaching them the word of God. Why is it important that we are studying and teaching the Bible? Because that's what we see always modeled through the Bible, is the importance of the Bible. So we spend a great amount of time teaching the word of God. Verse 12, and this is an important historical note here. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, this is how we know that Paul's missionary journey, the second one, was between the years 51 to 53 AD, thereabouts. Because, verse 12, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. In 1905, just in the turn of the 20th century, there was an inscription discovered at the ancient Greek city of Delphi. And on that inscription, it spoke of Galileo being the proconsul of Achaia in the year 51 and 52. So, those kind of historical archaeological pieces is what helps us to date things like Paul's second missionary journey. We know the year now since the discovery in 1905. It's called the inscription at Delphi, which which detailed the, 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 um, the rule of Galileo as proconsul of the region of Achaia. But here we have some Jews, again, not liking what Paul is doing. They Go before Galileo. They make charges here. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And so verse 14 says, Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, (laughs) this guy's a Gentile. I I I don't understand all the Jewish stuff. He says, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galio showed no concern whatever. So here's, here's the scene. Galileo's like, you know what? I don't, I don't get your whole Jewish law, kosher. I don't even get it. So forget it. I'm not deciding this. You guys settle on your own. And they're like, all right. Let's just go beat up the first person we see. And it says they start pounding a guy named Sosthenes, who's the synagogue ruler. Now, wait a minute. I thought Crispus, the serial guy, I thought he was the synagogue ruler earlier. Yes, in fact, he was the synagogue ruler. The implication is Crispus lost his job because he became a believer. Sosthenes is the new ruler of the synagogue now. But you know what's interesting? Again, the Bible is the best commentary in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians one one, Paul commands Sosthenes as a brother in Christ. So apparently, this guy becomes a believer later too. Because Crispus is actually somebody that Paul mentions by name in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as one of the only couple of people that he baptized by water. In 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says that he baptized Crispus and Gaius. And some even believe that Gaius is a reference to the guy... Uh, Titius Justice, whose home they met him. That they believe his name might have been Gaius Titius Justice, and that those are the guys that Paul baptized by water. Now, here's something else. For people who make the argument, it's a, it's a wrong argument, but they make the argument that baptism is required for salvation. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any one of you, except for Crispus and Gaius. Now, what he's saying the reason he's saying that, when you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because people were starting to elevate Paul and Apollos as different people who were important and special. And so Paul is addressing the fact that, listen, we're just vessels. He says, who is Paul and who is Apollos? We're just vessels, people, that God works through and uses. And that's why then he says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And the reason he's saying that is because if I... Can you imagine... If if he had baptized a bunch of the people at Corinth, they would have been like, well, who baptized you? Silas? You know, who baptized me? Paul, the apostle Paul. That's right. Paul signed my baptism certificate. Sorry, it was only Silas for you. It was Paul for me, you know. And they'd be going around doing all this. So that's why Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius because it was all going to your head that you were elevating us as some people who were important. But I mention that also in the context of this. If baptism were required for salvation... There's many other verses I could point to, but that's a great context to remind us. If Paul, the great evangelist who was going around leading people to Christ, ends up saying, I thank God I didn't baptize all you people. It's a clear indication that baptism is not a requirement. Water baptism is not a requirement for salvation, friends. You can't add anything to the to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. If you make it Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus speaking in tongues, Jesus plus circumcision, you have just now tainted the message of the cross. You've now made it a work system. You've now made the gift of God, which is a gift of grace that we accept through faith, a works-oriented system when you attach anything to the simple sacrifice of christ on the cross it is by grace are you saved through faith and this the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast so just wanted to mention that part out there because that 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 thing still circulates in some circles of the church that baptism is a requirement for, no bat, water baptism indicates it is an external expression of an internal work that you have died to your old life and you 've been raised to in, in a in a new life with Christ, and that 's water baptism under the water out of the water, but it is not a requirement for salvation it 's a demonstration of what you believe in your heart. so back to our story here um, they turn they beat up Sosthenes, Galileo stands there like, okay, whatever, you know, and he doesn 't care, showed no concern, verse eighteen. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. And then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And then, interesting here, it says, Be- before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sankaria because of a vow he had taken. So, what, what's, you know, what's he doing cutting his hair here, and what does it have to do with the vow? Most Bible scholars believe that the vow that it's referring to is a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow. Here's a little background on the Nazarite vow. Now, if you were here in our study of Samson uh, in the book of Judges, you will remember uh, a reference that I made to the Nazarite vow. But for those of you who weren't, uh, the Nazarite vow is mentioned in Numbers chapter 6. And it is for three particular purposes. Number one, it was a voluntary vow of separation, consecration, and dedication to God okay let's say that you uh you wanted your life to be set apart for some special purpose for god or you were maybe struggling with some area in your life and you wanted to get right with god there was some specific intentional purpose some something that you were up to that you really wanted this this time to be separated and consecrated and dedicated unto god you could take a nazirite vow it was completely voluntary no one was ever asked to take a nazirite vow it was offered as a way for you to just consecrate and dedicate and separate yourself unto god Number two, it does apply to both men and women in Numbers chapter 6, although there's no example of a woman taking a Nazarite vow in Scripture, with some would make an exception, Samson's mother took a voluntary abstinence because the Nazarite vow was on her son, and as she carried him in her womb, um, she participated in some restrictions herself that some say she took a Nazarite vow. It's not all that clear, but certainly, she, whatever she did, she did it because the scriptures were clear that her son, Samson, uh, was to be under a Nazarite vow from the moment he was born. And number three, it was usually for a set period of time, a day, a week, a month. I guess a day won't make your hair grow that long, so more than that. Uh, but sometimes uh, it was taken for a lifetime. And, and here is the, what would be the practices of a Nazarite vow. There were three. First was no wine. No fermented drink or anything of the grapevine. Anything of the grapevine. Not even grapes themselves. Not even jelly from grapes, okay? Nothing having to do with the vine. And the idea was because if you were going to be consecrated and separated unto the Lord, you didn't want anything that would risk potential intoxication. That you were to be completely sober-minded at all times... And so, just so that there wasn't any confusion about when anything possibly fermented, when did it go from just being really bubbly to to really knocking you out, God says, if you want to take the Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6, it was all part of this, you don't touch anything related to the grapevine, nothing. Number two, there was to be no contact or closeness to a dead body. Under a Nazarite vow, you couldn't attend a funeral, couldn't walk through a cemetery. You had to... Refrain from being around any dead body. And then, number three, there was no cutting of the hair. Oh.
0: The book of Acts is so full of the Holy Spirit and the joy of the newly formed church. Though Jesus has left the earth for an unknown time, he didn't leave his followers alone. He gave them the same gift offered to us even now, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus' sacrifice of love as our only hope for salvation, we automatically receive the Holy Spirit to help us as we grow in faith. Today, you too can have the Holy Spirit. We'd love to talk more with you about this. So please feel free to give us a call at 703-771-1500. If you already know Jesus, we'd still love to hear from you and be able to encourage and pray for you. Our number again is 703-771-1500. Are you in the Leesburg area? If so, come join us for our weekly services at Cornerstone Chapel. We meet each week on Sundays at 830 10 at 1145 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Come get to know us better, meet Pastor Gary, study the Bible, and spend time worshiping God for all he's done. Directions to Cornerstone Chapel can be found on our website cornerstoneconnection.cc With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Join us next time to learn more about the early church in the book of Acts right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you soul, that you've got no
1: place to go, but still you know.